0: Welcome to Smashing Through Walls with Carla McGee. Whether you are just pulling up a seat to the table, breaking a glass ceiling or smashing through walls, grab your favorite mug and join us on the first and third Friday at 11 o'clock for candid conversations with industry experts and decision makers as we navigate and explore all the things related to real estate and community.
1: Good morning, Wall Smashers. I am super excited today. To have a good friend of mine, Carmen DeFulvio. I did did it. You did. With a Security First 1031 Exchange, correct? This is one of my favorite topics, so I'm so excited that we're doing this. And like towards the end of the year, which I feel like I would call like 1031 season, would you? Are you guys busy right now?
2: It dies down a little bit towards the end of the year, but we're keying up, gearing up for 2023.
1: Yeah. we'll just start jumping right into it. Did okay. you guys see, so I noticed like for me, 1031 season's more like, like October-ish and this October was kind of weird. Was it weird for you guys?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just, that's when it started to
1: Get edge <laughs> down a little bit,
2: you know, because of market conditions. Yeah. But normally, yeah, October is a pretty busy month. As we see end of year, sometimes we see some more commercial transactions mm-hmm. come up. But and when we start talking about the residential owner mm-hmm. and they want to do 1031s, they've got other things on their plate. Thanksgiving's coming, right. Christmas is coming. So it's not the it's not front of mind for the 1031. So right. that one kind of waits until first quarter next year.
1: Yeah, that's true. Okay. Let's educate our listeners. Yeah. When so we just use the term 1031. Like it's a, like it's a noun, right? So like, <laughs> what is a 1031?
2: So 1031 is uh, section 1031 of the tax code uh, referred to most people by 1031 exchange. And what a 1031 exchange allows is you can sell your investment property, whether that's a rental house, land, commercial property, whatever type of real property that's held for investment purposes, you can sell that property. And instead of paying the tax on it, you're going to pay capital gains, state taxes. There's a lot of taxes that come up. But instead of paying those taxes, you can do the 1031 exchange, follow the rules, which we'll go into. Right, super tight rules. Yeah. And then as long as you buy new investment property within certain timeframes, you can defer those taxes. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to pay the money. You get to keep it. You know, maybe, it's, maybe you owe 20000 in taxes or maybe it's a commercial property where you owe $2 million in taxes. Right. You get to keep those dollars and use that money to reinvest into your new property. So I always tell people it's an interest-free loan from the government.
1: Pretty much. Yeah,
2: you get to keep this money. Instead of giving it up, you keep it and you get to build wealth rather than pay the tax on right. this money. So right. yeah, so it's a wonderful tool.
1: It really is. And notice how we say defer and not avoid. Yeah. Right.
2: It's, yeah, it's you're just not kicking
1: a- that can down the road, but it's a great can to be kicking because if you think about, like, there was a client I had who bought a crappy little triplex in Mesa years ago for like a hundred thousand dollars. So mm-hmm. he invested twenty thousand dollars, right, the down payment. Yeah, he now owns multiple uh, units, multiple doors because he was able to take that twenty thousand dollars and now sell his triplex and then we exchanged it into other units so now that 20 he still has that little twenty thousand dollar um investment is now multiple properties yeah right like if you think about it because we you know leveraged it and spread it across a couple of them
2: oh yeah it's great you get to just watch it grow yeah yeah
1: so yeah it's like yeah you know you could do it now or do it later or we there's defer till defer till you die
2: (laughs) it's, we actually call it swap till you drop. Oh, well, yeah.
1: I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I should leave the death part out of it. Then. Well,
2: you yeah. know, no, it's it, it's another option. Uh, I would say most taxpayers don't take advantage of that. I mean, take advantage of it. Uh, that's kind of funny to say you're going to take advantage of dying, but <laughs> that's one thing we all have in common. We're going right, to die at some taxes, point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things you can do in ten thirty one is you keep on exchanging and you exchange. I have to raise my hands because I always talk with my hands on this. <laughs> they keep on exchanging and then when they die, what happens is if they've structured it properly mm-hmm. with their tax professional, the heirs don't inherit their tax liability. So right. maybe for 20, 30 years, they've kept on exchanging. They've exchanged five or six times. You know, they Like you said, they went from one property to two properties right. and then two properties to three or four right. and just made it bigger and bigger. And when they die, their heirs can get a stepped-up basis on that property so that they don't inherit the tax liability. It dies with the taxpayer. So it's a wonderful tool. It's -hmm. just, like I said, a bad way to get there. Right. Um, Now, that being said... Everybody needs to talk with their tax professional about 100%. that because I can't advise them on that. You can't advise them nope. on that. Neither we. None of us want to. We Here. just want to bring up the idea. You yeah. can do it.
1: You'll even see at the end of this episode, there is a long list of, of people you should consult <laughs> after listening to this podcast. Yeah. Yes.
2: And so uh, if you work with your tax professional, you can get that stepped up basis because it's all about how you hold title on the property. And if you hold it properly and, it, and you die... As the the taxpayer on title, they get the stepped-up basis.
1: right? And the stepped-up basis means at the time of the original owner's passing, the value of the property at that time. Yeah. So they could have bought it for a dollar, and now it's worth a million. The new step-up basis is the one million.
2: Exactly. So the heir would inherit the the property at a million-dollar basis. Now, they could sell it the next day for a million dollars. Yep. And then they have no profit. Yep. Or maybe they continue on. Maybe they say, okay, this is a nice multi-unit property. I want to hold it. Right. And then maybe they sell it three or four years later. Right. Their basis is a million, and maybe they're going to sell it now for a million, too. Right. So So
1: it's the delta then. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. the delta,
2: the $200,000 difference. They either pay tax on it, or then they could do a 1031 exchange. Right.
1: And so I've had families, you know, groups of siblings, whatever, um, that they're... Parents have passed and left them multifamily properties, and have called me, and that's a conversation I have with them, because yeah. sometimes they're like, "What if we remodel this? What if what if we put some money into it and really, you know, turn that million dollar property into a two million dollar property?" It's like, well, I recommend you talk to your tax professional and make sure you bring up this concern. Yeah, right, because now you have messed with your basis.
2: It's an it's an I mean it's nice to have a nicer property. Well, yeah, then you're gonna you're gonna be able to get more. Income right. on the property because you're gonna rent it a higher co- at a higher rental, but is it gonna benefit you? What's the ROI gonna be?
1: Right. What's your actual goal? If your goal is to just sell it because your parents passed and that was a nice inheritance, say thank you and let's just do it in its current condition. Yeah. If you would like to inherit it and use it as a as your own rental and your own investment, well then we need to talk about that too. Right. right? That's why I always ask people my first question is what are the goals here? Right. Okay, so the 1031 is a tax code mm-hmm. from the seventies. Am I wrong?
2: Yeah. Oh, when? 1921. Shit. Shoot. Oh. Did, well bleep it's... that out, would you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're used to me mm. by now.
2: Yeah, the code was written back in 1921. So yeah, we did last year was our hundredth birthday. I guess if we talk about the history of exchange. The first exchange didn't happen until 1967. Maybe that's where I was getting at. Yeah, oh, that was it. I'll, 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 we'll give me that. I'll give you half a gold star for it then. <laughs> um, the first exchange happened in 67. And bluntly, the IRS didn't even know what was happening <laughs> because the gentleman ended up getting audited and he lost. In oh, 1968, really? the guy that did the first exchange, and uh, everybody wants to know, I'm sure this is, you know, everybody's sitting on their edge of the seat. Who was it? I can feel it. Yeah, T.J. Starker.
1: Who the heck is that?
2: Yeah, there's some guy that owns some, some land. Yeah, <laughs> He owns some timber land in the Northwest. Okay. And uh, he did an exchange, got new property. But in 1968, the IRS said, no, you can't do this. And they said, all right, you owe $300,000 in taxes. Oof. He fought it for 11 years. Oof. And in 1979, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals finally said, he did everything right. Give right. him his money back. Yeah. So he got his $300,000 back, no interest. Of course Uh, not. But if you owed them, there uh, would be a big bill. You think? So, yeah, he got his money back, and that was really the birth of the exchange because nobody really thought you could do it, even though it was in the code. Nobody understood it. It was like stereo instructions in the 70s. You read it and you go, huh? (laughs) So, that was really the birth of the exchange. So, you know, we haven't been doing them for 100 years. But that's where it comes from.
1: And do you think that that was probably like public, right? Because he was fighting it and everything else that maybe then it was like, well, wait, what is this? What are they?
2: It kind of was. Yeah. But, you know, there were still a lot of people, uh, especially in back East. Attorneys back East still didn't think it was right. You know, Ninth Circuit Court was very liberal at the time. Oh, that's not going to hold up here. So a lot of attorneys back East, New York and New England said, we won't touch it still. But then in 1984, uh, through the Deficit Reduction Act, the okay. IRS set some rules on a 1031 exchange, the timeframes that we're going to be talking about yeah. in a little bit. And at that point, they said, well, wait a second. If they're setting timeframes through a new tax bill, then they must think it's okay because they're putting new rules in place. Right. So really, everybody wasn't comfortable until 1984. So that's when it started to take off.
1: Right. So let's talk about those rules. Okay. Because they're pretty— st- Stringent.
2: They're pretty easy to understand. I mean, they're easy. They're basic,
1: but they don't they don't wiggle. No, no flexibility. uh -uh.
2: Yeah. There are two things a taxpayer has to do uh, to defer all their taxes. Uh, The first one are some financial requirements, Uh, and basically what they have to do is buy a new property of equal or greater value. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason behind that, and I get this, I have this argument, wink, wink. It's not an argument, (laughs) but clients don't understand why. The two things they have to do is spend all their money mm-hmm. from the sale. So, if I'm selling a half million dollar property, let's just say I, I have I net three hundred thousand from it. So, the first thing is I have to use all three hundred thousand as down payment on my new property. Mm-hmm. So that one's pretty easy to understand. Whatever right. cash I you get, I made three
1: hundred. So that Spend makes sense. all of it. Right. Yeah.
2: The second one gets people. So, if I did sell a five hundred thousand dollar property and I only netted three hundred. I probably had a loan on the property. Yeah. Let's say the loan was 150 and the, and the delta there because the 150 and 300 doesn't equal 500, that's 450. The other 50,000 we're going to say are closing costs. Right. Commissions to the real estate broker, uh, maybe closing costs of the title company, mm-hmm. standard costs of a sale. So, you had 300,000 cash and 150 debt. What the IRS says you have to do is not only spend the cash but you've also got to reacquire that debt piece on the new property that you have to buy. So you're basically buying equal or greater. You're just subtracting out your allowable closing costs from the sale. So if you sell 500, you got to buy 450, maybe 470, but it's going to be someplace in there. What a lot of people don't understand is why do I have to reacquire the debt? And the reason behind that is the reasoning, the reason that 1031s are even there is that in 1921, Congress wanted people to keep all of their value in the real estate market. So if I, only, if I sold a property for half a million and I only took the 300000 and reinvested that, I just took about $200,000 out of the market, out of the economy. Right. That's not good for the economy. Mm-hmm. The Congress wants to see it grow. Mm-hmm. So they say you have to spend all the cash and reacquire that debt value so that you're at least buying what you sold. And that's why it's an exchange. Mm-hmm. Like if you re- if you return a shirt at the store, right. you're exchanging it for the same value. Right. You're just getting going from red to blue. Right. It's kind of the same thing in real estate.
1: And you can buy the more expensive blue shirt, but you have to at least buy the red shirt.
2: Exactly. Right. And and that's what they want to see. They they were anticipating that most people are going to buy something bigger, better, because as the economy goes on, you're going to end up having to buy something bigger. Because if you want the same property or a different property, because one of the reasons people exchange, there's lots of reasons, but one reason is for relocation. I live in Phoenix, but I'm moving to Chicago Mm -hmm. and I have a rental property, but I don't want to manage a property in Phoenix from Chicago. So I'm going to sell the property here. I'm going to buy a property there and I'm just going to exchange it, move the location. Mm -hmm. But they're going to make me keep the same value. Right. And that's what they want to see.
1: And what's super fascinating about even like that example is in Phoenix, 500000 would buy a triplex. And in Ohio, that would buy five triplexes, right? So it could really work out for you. I mean, there's people... I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of reasons why people exchange too. Like, hey, I bought this crappy little triplex years ago. I'd like to have a nice triplex now, right? Like a nicer area, maybe better tenants, things like that. So it's interesting why people choose to exchange or, you know, kind of what their reasons are.
2: Well, it's interesting. I'm actually in the middle of an exchange right now for a, a, a local client in Phoenix. He sold a Starbucks for $2 million. Yep. And he's buying 24 houses in Kansas City. Wow. fifty dollars to $70,000 each. Yeah. And I, he said the cap rate on oh, yeah, the, the Starbucks property wasn't great.
1: No, that Starbucks is like a, barely a four. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And he said, if I go buy these houses, I can, I can make, I can be 10 to 12. Yeah. Now, you know, he's buying not expensive houses. Right. You know, but he said he can get about $1,000 a month rental income. He's not a a client that would traditionally buy residential property. But market conditions swayed him to say, all right, maybe for the next couple years, I'll go ahead and buy these houses and I'll have someone manage them for me. I'll, I'll make more money. And then down the road, what can I do? I can do another 1031 exchange, Mm -hmm. sell the houses and move back into commercial. Yeah. So, and I I guess that's probably one thing we should talk about too, is talk about like kind for 1031. Because I'm talking about selling a Starbucks and buying houses. Right. Some people say, well, that's not like kind. Because in the code, it says you have to buy and sell property held like kind. And like kind just means any type of real estate. Right. The, the, the like kind really defines on the, what type, how you're going to hold it. So it has to be investment property. So any property held for investment purposes qualifies for 1031. Mm-hmm. So you can sell that Starbucks and buy houses or sell land because you have maybe you own some land that's you're not producing any income, Right. sell it and then go buy some income producing property. Mm-hmm. So that's a great thing about 1031 is that any type of real property qualifies as long as it's held for investment purposes.
1: Well, and the whole reason the like-kind language was in there is because prior to 2017, am I correct, there you could there were multiple categories, for lack of a better word.
2: Actually, it was 1997. Jeez, I'm off today. Yeah, 1997. So, you had in, so prior to 1997, if you sold single family, you had to buy single family. Okay. Multifamily, multifamily, commercial, commercial, land, land. But in 19, 1997, the IRS actually did two things to make all of our, even if you don't do exchanges, to make all of our lives easier. One, they they broadened the definition of like kind. Mm-hmm. It was, in, they made it investment for investment. Now, granted, now here's the second thing, and you, I'm, I hate to talk nice about the IRS <laughs> because I'm going to get hate emails for it, <laughs> but they also did something great that year. That's when they passed the new, pri- the new primary residence exclusion, section 121 of the tax that code. That makes sense. Which says, if you live in the property two out of five years, you get 250 tax free if you're 250,000 I should qualify. 250,000 tax free if you're single or half a million if you're married. Mm-hmm. Whereas before that, we just had a once in a lifetime exclusion. But what they realized was that it, my grandparents lived in two houses their whole life. So, you know, is it how many houses have you been in?
1: A lot. Personally, yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: we've all <laughs> we've all been in more than two and we're right. going to be in more. Right. So, they made it easier because they saw that Lifestyles change.
1: Well, and quite honestly, that's good for the economy too, right? Sure, because as we sell our starter home to buy our second home. And as we sell the second home to now buy, or, you know, downsize when you're empty nesters or, yeah. you know, anything, it's good to buy and sell
2: it, real it, estate. It's great for anybody involved, you know, yeah. because obviously you're going to keep appraisers going because now yep. you're, they're they're working more. Uh, real estate professionals, title companies, mm-hmm. everybody's got more transactions. So it spurs the economy in right. ways that you don't necessarily think of. Or, Whenever we see more transactions, you know we, we know that Lowe's and Home Depot right. they start seeing more income because what are people doing when right. you buy a They're new house? They're
1: painting. They're yeah. making updates. Exactly. They're, right. So it's just it's just good all around. It is. Plus, it does it opens up what I would call starter homes, mm-hmm. right? For your next generation of starter homes, because then your grandparents aren't living in the same right. starter house their entire life. They're kind Of letting that go so that the next generation can kind of buy and move forward,
2: so it's great for everybody.
1: Okay, so that was 1997. So then, what am I thinking of in 2017? Because you know, you know what I'm thinking, yeah. In
2: 2017, um, it was, I think you're probably talking about the tax cuts and jobs act, yes. Um, And like,
1: couldn't you trade like people could like exchange planes and cars and stuff exactly?
2: So, 1031s previously, uh, prior to 2017. They were for real estate transactions, of course, like we've talked about. But you could also do exchanges on personal property. Because the way the code read in 2000, sorry, prior to 2017, it said it had to be property held for productive use in a trade or business or for investment. So obviously that was a house, land, commercial. Easy. But it just said property. What's property? So it could be other things. It could be airplanes. It could be businesses. right? So any type of real property you could do an exchange with. And we had done them prior to 2017. I probably at least had one aircraft exchange going always. And so as long as it was held for business purposes, you know, maybe you got a business that where you're flying Grand Canyon tours or something like that. If they want to upsize that plane or they need to get a new aircraft, they could have done a 1031 exchange. And now what people don't think of about that you would say well if i bought a plane 10 years ago for a million dollars right it's going to be worth less now like a car yeah it's not it's not worth more it's worth less so i'm going to sell it for 700,000 okay so if i have no profit why do i need to do a 1031 exchange because i lost money oh uh-huh. I want to tell you the answer so bad, but I'll let you do it. No, you tell me. <laughs>
1: it's the, re- the depreciation. The depreciation,
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, it's called recaptured depreciation. So when you sell a property, you've been depreciating it over its lifetime. Uh, real estate, you depreciate. Uh, uh, when we talk about residential, it's 27 and a half mm-hmm. years. Commercial property, used to be 39 and a half. They just changed it a couple of years ago to 42 and a half years. So every year you're taking a deduction, which a write-off, which I right. love write-offs. I'll take as many as I can get. Yep. On personal property, it's much faster. Some personal property assets you could depreciate over five years or oh, seven wow. years. So that aircraft, I don't know the depreciation schedule on aircraft before, but it, let's just say it was 10 years. If you owned it for 10 years, you've depreciated down to nothing after you owned it 10 years. Right. So now when you sell it, yeah, you sell it at a loss, but you have to pay back 25% of however much you depreciated that asset, which right. if you depreciate it from a million to nothing, that's $250,000 in taxes you owe. huh. So even if you sell it for half a million dollars, you, half of that, you're paying in taxes. Yep. So you could do a 1031 exchange. Unfortunately, through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, passed at the end of 2017, we almost lost 1031s completely. Uh, our trade organization, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, along with NAR, CCIM, oh, yeah, tons of all
1: going after it. I'm real sure. estate
2: organizations were like, do not get rid of 1031s. So we were all lobbying on the hill and we were able to retain the real property portion, but we lost the personal property, right? So
1: I remember, like, even like cattle, things mm-hmm. like that, anything that was held for business purposes. Right? Actually,
2: my last personal property exchange, I literally got a call December 31st, 2017, <gasps> it was at noon. New Year's Eve. I don't want to work till five o'clock. <laughs> no. Uh, I was planning on leaving early afternoon that day, and I literally got a call from a gentleman down in Tucson, and he called and he said, "I'm selling a property. I need to do a ten thirty one. It's closing today." Oof, and this I love was those like I said, calls. this was right around noon. Yeah. Okay. He was selling the ranch and the cattle. Yeah. About twelve hundred head of cattle. Uh, the cattle were worth two million. I the was going to say
1: twelve hundred. That's a lot of.
2: Expensive cattle. Oh, yeah. Uh, the cattle was about $2 million. The ranch was only a million. So, I mean, with more value in the cattle than in the, in the ranch itself, he did two exchanges because we got it in under the wire. It had to be closed by the end of 2017. Yikes. He was closing that day. We got his exchange going. He did two exchanges, one for the cattle, one for the ranch, Went to went to Waco, Texas, bought a new ranch, bought new cattle, and that was the last personal property exchange that I did.
1: Well, and what's super interesting to me, without getting too political, is that just looking at who's in office at that time, it's so fascinating that it was almost off the table, right? But rewind two years ago when our current president was being elected and they were like, he's going to kill the exchange, he's going (laughs) to kill the exchange. Like the sky is flying, it reminds me of like Chicken Little, right? Yeah. And it it never happened. And it's like, meanwhile— the person that they seem to like a lot was literally trying to get rid of it
2: it, it I, again without being without political, too political right? um and i please i don't uh, send me hate emails or
1: anything <laughs> well you're already getting them so darn it
2: so <laughs> both parties see benefit in eliminating 1031 okay so again we'd go back to 2017 the republican party um, Ran everything. They had the right. house, the Senate, and the White House, so they were able to get tax reform done, which is fine. Right. Just don't mess with me. Um, <laughs> so what we so what the reason they wanted to get rid of ten thirty ones is they needed more. They needed more to pay for, so they wanted tax cuts. But if you cut taxes, you've got to generate that income someplace else. Somewhere. So they said, "Well, okay, we'll eliminate ten thirty one exchange." <laughs> like I said, we were able to show them it wasn't the same bang for the buck. Uh-uh. So we were able to keep, like I said, the real property exchange. But then the Democrats still want to get 10 th- get rid of 1031s too. Now, the reason they want to get rid of 1031s is that they need want more income. income. They want more taxes to pay for other things that they want to implement. Right. So even under the admin- current administration over the last couple of years, President Biden's uh, budget has re- called for a limit to 1031 exchanges that you can only make half a million dollars gain that can be deferred through a 1031. So if I sell a $2 million property,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I bought it for a million, I sell. i I'm going to sell it for $2 million. You can only... I, I made a million profit, they'll only let you defer half a million dollars profit. What
1: about the recapture?
2: You'll have to, well, if you, it would still be deferred through the 1031. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But on the gain, half a million, that's it. It wouldn't affect my small taxpayers, you know, selling... Rental houses. They're triplex, for yeah. example, right? But it would affect a lot of 1031 exchanges out there, especially right. you know definitely the corporate ones selling yeah. the big properties. This hasn't passed. It hasn't no. done anything. It's all it's all just been part of the budget, and it didn't pass last year. Didn't pass this year. We don't see it happening. I was going to say
1: it's sure as heck not going to pass no. next year. Now, yeah.
2: We we it, they keep he keeps on it keeps on staying in the budget, but budgets never get approved. So. It's something we watch yeah. as an industry. Oh yeah, but it's not something that I don't think we're losing sleep over it. Don't
1: you think that with as baby boomers are aging out, it would be more dangerous to get rid of the step up basis than it would be to get rid of the exchange?
2: Kind of, I think both. Yeah, yeah, and stepped up basis has been on on the chopping block oh, as well. Sure. They're talking about that too. So you know, there are a lot of people on the Hill talking with congressional representatives to make sure that both still stay in play.
1: Yeah. Like, oof. Could you imagine? Like, I just think of like the the one I did last year for the family. And I think we sold it for like two and a half million. And their dad, their dad didn't even, I think he paid $40,000 for all of it. And most of it was on trade because he was a commercial broker and he like traded like a, I think she said like a little house in Tucson for this 12 unit and Mesa because you know Mesa was nothing back then, yeah, yeah. And she was like, So I think he valued it at like $40,000 or something like that, and then he held on to it his whole life. And she was like, I remember going to as a little girl to these apartments that drove me crazy because we had to go repair this or go collect rent right here. And he'd tell us every day, every time, This is your inheritance, girls. And I was like, That is so sweet, and I was so honored to be able to be part of it. But could you imagine the difference on that would be over two million dollars? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, like, if there, if step up basis didn't exist, then that would be a a huge tax liability and it wouldn't have the warm, fuzzy feeling that it did, you know, once he passed and I was able to sell it for them.
2: Oh, yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, like I said, it has to be, it has to go through Congress. Yeah. So these are things that everybody listening, talk to Mm -hmm. your representative, send them an email. They listen, Mm -hmm. especially if they start getting multiple emails. Uh, I was just talking not too long ago with a, a chief of staff, uh, with a senator. I'll just say that, <laughs> and the chief of staff said that every email they get they feel represents about five hundred people, constituents. So if they get ten emails on one topic in a day, yeah. that's they they look at that as five thousand constituents just reached out.
1: I think that that makes sense. Who were we talking to? It was the Arizona Housing Authority. Who was Nico? is that who they're with? And he was talking about like, as people bring in, like, you know, you go to like city council and they're trying to zone for multifamily and high density housing and stuff like that. All of a sudden you get either opposition or pro like you don't like they need feedback even in between. Right. Right? Like, you know, he's like, cause I, he, well, how, how did he put it? He was like, because what happens is, is once it's, once it, you know, gets to that point, then the guy that was sitting on his couch watching football, he should have been speaking up like last year. Yeah. Right. You know, like, hey, I don't believe we should have or, you know, we need more housing or, or, or we don't or, or whatever. So it, I think that someone would appreciate that they're taking at least that one email and saying that it speaks volumes because someone's at least speaking. Yeah. Right.
2: Well, we have in our industry, we have a, a call to action pretty much always now. We have a link to it on our website where you can click the website, go to our organization page, and you send an email directly through there to your senators and your congressional representatives. All you have to do is because you type in your address, Yeah. and it's done through, again, it's done through the government. And it knows exactly who your reps are because it knows by your address. And we already have an email typed, so, you know, it takes like—you could just hit send. And right. then you don't know what sense. So, you know, so, but you got to read it. But it just right. basically says 1031s are good for the economy. Don't get rid of it. Right. Yeah. So you type in your name, address, email, done. Yep. It's pretty simple. And it's a way, like I said, it's a way to reach out. So when, when I'm out there doing presentations across the country, I'm always telling people, go to our website, right. click this take action button and bang, it's it's and done.
1: Take action. Yeah, exactly. So, Okay. That was like the the first rule one. Yeah. We, okay.
2: When was that? An hour ago we talked about that? Yeah.
1: Okay. Rule two.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, the first rule was those financial requirements. Yep. Spend the cash. Yeah. Get the—replace the debt. Yeah. The second one of the time frames. Uh, you have to worry about time frames in a 1031. And the hardest one is the 45-day identification period. So, when you close on your sale, first off—
1: Please call me before you close on your sale. Oh, yeah. For the love. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and please call me too, because yeah. like I said, that guy called me you know, at noon oh, for I've a those yeah. two o'clock closing. You always have to set up a transaction with a qualified intermediary before the sale closes. Yeah. So a qual- I'm a qualified intermediary with Security First Exchange. And what we do is we document the transaction. We work with your title company or your attorney that if you're working back east. Right. We get it all ready. And then when the sale closes, all the documents are in place. So when the sale closes, the money doesn't go to the taxpayer. So we talked about 300000 cash they were mm-hmm. going to net. That doesn't go to the client. No. They're not allowed to touch it. Ever. So it comes to us. Mm-hmm. And then what we do is we hold that on on behalf of the client. We open up a segregated account at the bank under their name and tax ID. So they're getting all the benefits. They're getting the interest on the account. It's just like it was their account. It's just that we manage it for them. Right. So when the sale closes... Day one of our exchange is the day after the closing. So you close today, tomorrow's day one. Yep. Taxpayers have 45 calendar days. Every day counts, Saturday, Sunday, holiday. Doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Yeah, doesn't matter. No. Nope. It doesn't matter anything. So they've got to get it done. They've got to identify what they're going to buy in the 45 days. And to identify, it means, it doesn't mean you have to be under contract. It doesn't mean you have to close. It just means you have to tell the qualified intermediary, Here's what I'm going to buy. Right. And normally you can identify up to three properties. Mm-hmm. That's the standard rule for, for identification. There's another one called the 200% rule that lets you do more. It's a little more complicated right. for the, for this medium. Yeah. Call me. I could talk to you about <laughs> it.
1: I'll walk but, you right through it. Yeah.
2: But the three property rule is the standard way. So you can identify up to three. You don't have to buy all three, but it gives you options. Because once the 45 days expires.
1: Those were it.
2: That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you only identified one property in the 45 days, what if day 60 comes about and you can't can't get it under contract or you did an inspection you didn't like? It
1: was terrible, yeah.
2: That's it. You didn't identify anything else. So as a qualified intermediary, we can't help you purchase anything else. Right. The funny thing about that is I get calls fairly regularly. I'm sure. Where they say, I'm working with a different QI. I'm working with XYZ Exchange Company. And they told me, I can't change my identification. That just doesn't sound right.
1: <laughs> they, what they want you to give them a different
2: answer. Yeah, they want me to, and I'm like, <laughs> no, that's the rule. Right. And I, I hope the other companies do the same thing when right. it's, when they, black when and it's for me. It is. Yeah. yeah. So the best way to go through that 45 days is identify multiple, so you have a backup in case something goes wrong. Right. Or, well, not or, get the property under contract in the 45 that's days. That's the ideal. Do your due diligence within the forty-five right. days so you know it's gonna work. Yeah. But I know that's not that's a perfect world. Right. Sometimes you just can't do it. Yeah. So identify multiple. That way, if you have three properties on this form, if the first one doesn't work out, you've got two more you hopefully you can fall back on and hopefully they're still available.
1: Right. I know in my ideal world. You have called me before your property closes. Actually, in my ideal world, I'm the one selling your property. Yeah. Right, because I know what your all your dates are. I can line everything up Yep. because I'm sure you have the same opinion. Working with a qualified broker, real estate agent, is imperative because they need to know what what deadlines you're working with too. Everybody needs it's like a, a team event. Oh, yeah. And we all have to understand what's going on here. And so so if I'm selling your property— I know what day you're closing, and we should be shopping while we have it under contract before you close so that we can start identifying so that the day you close, we're putting another one under contract so that we can stay within those time periods. Right. Because then your next time period is…
2: The 180 days. To close. Yeah. The 180, that one's not normally too hard. It's not
1: too bad. Unless you're doing like a new build or something that's under construction and doesn't have like a a certificate of occupancy yet or anything like yeah.
2: that. Yeah, you, you have to close on your property within the 180 days. And those 45 and 180, they run concurrently. So the day after closing is day one of both timeframes. Right. So 45 to identify. And then if you want to look at it this way, another 135 to to close, which go. is a total of yeah. 180. The 180 is not normally a hurdle that I see most clients having to... Uh-uh. No, they're normally done long before that. Yeah. The forty-five days is the hardest part, and that being said, the forty-five days is a lot easier today. What today is November (laughs) than last year? Yeah, November eighteenth. It's a lot easier today than it was six months ago. You know, a year ago. Yeah, because there's more. I was recommending
1: reverse exchanges at that point.
2: Reverse exchanges are an option. I guess we have to, now we have to talk about that
1: too. <laughs> like tap, just yeah. touch on it. Yeah.
2: Reverse exchanges are, are pretty easy to understand. Yeah. Um, basically, just, yeah. it reverses the process. Instead of selling first, buying second, you buy first and sell second. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of catches to it. One catch is that the taxpayer themselves can't hold title to both properties at the same time. Right. So if technically, if you're buying first, you're on title to the one you're buying, but you're still on title to property that you want to sell through the 10, mm-hmm. 1031. You can't. So what happens is the qualified intermediary will create what's known as an EAT, an exchange accommodation title holder. Fancy name to say we're going to create an LLC. Right. We create an LLC, and then we take title to the property you're buying on your behalf. And then when that purchase closes, you have 180 days to sell the property you're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. That's catch number one, thats that we're going to hold title. Right. Catch number two is you haven't sold anything yet. And if you haven't sold anything yet, the qualified intermediary doesn't have any money to spend on your purchase. Right. So you've got to come up with the money. Right. How are you going to buy this property? Do you have the cash? Do you are you putting down twenty percent and getting an eighty percent loan? Uh, if you, on some properties, especially if we're talking about residential properties, most lenders won't lend to the qualified intermediary because right. again, we're taking title. Yeah. That means they're going to write the loan to our LLC. A lot of lenders won't do that. Yeah. So there's got to be a discussion with that lender before you ever consider yep. the, the reverse exchange.
1: Back to the team.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and then the last thing, they're a lot more expensive. Reverse yes. Reverse exchanges are a lot more expensive than a standard exchange. Security-first exchange, we charge $850 for any transaction under a million dollars for a forward exchange. Mm-hmm. One sale, one purchase. That's all you pay. For reverse exchanges... Because of the liability, the creation of right. the LLC, the documents are, are much more complicated. You're looking at a minimum $6,000.
1: Right. It has to make sense.
2: Yeah. Right. For people to just say, oh, but I found a property. I just do it first. No, right. it's got to be the perfect property and you're getting it at a great deal. Yes. All right. Makes sense. It doesn't make sense. And when I t- normally talk to people, if I tell them all this stuff in the last five minutes that we've talked about. Seventy-five percent of people go, oh, yeah, reverse exchange is not for me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, No, it has to make sense. Again, you have to talk to people that understand all these processes so that you can have, like, a whole round conversation. And then a lot of what I was doing last year is the identified property, let's get that under contract with, like, a 45-day close— and let's sell your property. Like let's lower the price to something you know is just going to turn and burn really fast. We're going to get a cash two week offer, so that then I can do it that way.
2: Yeah, and that's a great thing about ten thirty ones is that the order of the contracts being executed is irrelevant. It doesn't matter no, whether you're it's under all contract. About closing dates. Yep. yep. So go ahead and get your purchase property sure. under contract. Just get the pro- get the sale property closed first, mm-hmm. so that QI has the money to be able to use to buy the property.
1: Yep. Again educated people on your team. <laughs> yeah, and
2: you know, it's just one of those things is that, you know, most people don't know 1031s. Yeah, yeah. All you have to do is call me. Yeah. All you have to do is call Carla. You know it. I know it. We'll walk them through it and yeah. then we'll, we'll help out to figure out what's best.
1: So then I have clients sometimes who are like, I don't know if I want to exchange this time. I'm retiring. I just yeah. might want to sell it. My advice is to always, I would. I would prefer to see you put it with a qualified intermediary and not find something that we identify, then you looking through Zillow or LoopNet one day, and you're like, "Oh man, I would have bought that." And now the money touched your hands for a day, and now we—I mean, I'll help you buy it, but yeah. you can't exchange
2: into it. The cost of an exchange is is pretty low, right? So there's no reason to say if you have a high tax liability and you're still considering investing in real estate, right? There's no reason not to set up the exchange because what's the worst case scenario? You put it, you put it in. $850, and then you've got the 45 days. If you don't find anything, day 46, we give the you money. the money back, yep. and you pay taxes like you never did an exchange. The IRS doesn't say, oh, you owe an extra 10%. Right, no, right?
1: it doesn't yeah. matter. If
2: you owe $10,000, you owe $10,000. Right. All you're out is the fee for the exchange, and like I said, that's nominal. So it makes sense. Yeah. If you know you're out, if you say, that's it, I'm taking my money, I'm right. going to buy a yacht, and I'm going <laughs> to sail the seas. Okay, don't do an exchange. Right. But then don't go search Zillow and right. find something yes. and change your mind. Yes, because yeah. that
1: happens more times than not. Yeah. And, you know, the world, all world's problems would be solved if people just listened to me. <laughs> and if they just would have put it into an account to begin with, yeah. then I would have been able, then now we could do that. Sure. But, but you touched it and now we can't. We yep. can still buy it, but you had to pay gains on your first On your first go-round.
2: We get that. I hate hate this call. I know. Every, I want to say roughly 40 Mondays out of the year, we have this email, we have this call, whatever. We come in and somebody calls and says, hey, I closed a deal on Friday. Over the weekend, I was talking to my tax person, my neighbor. I was Googling the internet and I found out about this 1031 exchange the money's still at the title company. They haven't wired it yet. So why don't you just set up an exchange for me and that way I'll do the exchange? And our answer is, I'm sorry, we sorry can't. Sorry wow. Yeah. Because the reason behind that is there's a term in tax code called constructive receipt. Mm-hmm. When it closed on Friday, the money was due to the seller. So even though they haven't touched it, they don't have actual right. receipt, they have constructive receipt. Right. So now they still have to pay the tax. Yeah. And... I've had some I've had some people understand, and I've had some people that were pretty angry at right. like it's your fault, <laughs> I, I, yeah yeah if, if if I could change the world, obviously I'd make it easier, but that's the rule that that the code is. so yep. we we have to follow the code,
1: and that's it. Those are really the three big rules, yeah, right? Like if you can stay within those guidelines, there's some nuances, but other than that, it's
2: ninety percent of it, yeah, you know it. The, the little things that pop up. Uh, there's don't buy from related parties or there's uh, things like that. But right. that's where we, that's where we dig into the transaction. Like if somebody calls in today and says, "All right, I want to do a ten thirty one exchange." We're going to go over the basics and we're going to say, "Is there anything we need to know about the transaction that you're doing?" And oh yeah, I'm thinking about buying a, pro- a property from my mom because you know she's she's going to move in with us, so I'm going to buy her house yeah you can't do that not right. do it not do it 1031 so we we try to dig yeah to get so that because every once in a while yeah there is some nuance we have to look at
1: the I think the biggest misnomer that I get calls on is flippers flippers want a 1031 yeah. exchange all the time and if you belong, if you're on any social media and any of like the groups where they talk about it there is a big divide down the middle of those that think you can and those that think you can't and here's how I put it just because you get away with speeding every day doesn't mean you're supposed to be speeding.
2: Did you steal that one from me? No. Okay. <laughs> I use that one all the do time. Do you? I do. That's funny. I say, mine is you, you, I, you can go 100 miles an hour right. from here to Tucson. And if you don't get caught, you're fine. Right. But, and getting caught would be audit. And I don't want to be on. Let's talk about flippers just for a second. Yeah. I don't think, my opinion and my personal opinion, talk to your tax person. 100%. My personal opinion is flippers can't do exchanges because the way the code reads, it says it has to be property held right. for productive use in a trade or business or for investment. Flippers don't hold properties for investment purposes. They buy buy it for one reason, for resale. Mm-hmm. So flippers shouldn't do exchanges. Developers don't do exchanges mm-hmm. because even though they're, they've had the property for maybe two years, mm-hmm. three years, they didn't hold it for investment. They right. built it for one reason, resale. Right. And that's what the flipper's doing. They're buying the property. They want to sell it in three to six months and get out. They're never showing it as an investment on their tax return. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't qualify. Now, some uh, very aggressive tax professionals might disagree with me. Have I done exchanges for flippers before? Yes. Right. I say, all right, you're comfortable with it. I'm yeah. comfortable with it because I'm not their tax professional.
1: No, you're not the one on the chopping block. Yeah. In the so end. Yeah.
2: If, when, if they get audited... They're, they're not going to call me because I'm not going to go there with them. Right. I'm going to say, you that's up to you and your tax person right. to decide. So I don't want to say they can't do it. My opinion, my opinion is they shouldn't.
1: Right. Well, same, right? If I have a flipper that wants me to sell their property and that wants me to help them put them into the next one, I'm not going to tell them no. Right. But I am going to tell them that you should probably consult your CPA. And if you have, then I will continue to move forward.
2: Yeah, but yeah. you know who their CPA is, right? <laughs> who? <Ew>. TurboTax.
1: <laughs> Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I get
2: that call, you know. Oh, I don't have a tax professional. Wow. If you're an investor in real estate, get a tax professional. You, you have to. Oh yeah. You know, TurboTax TurboTax can be good for a lot of people out there, uh-huh. but for investment properties, you need you need more. You need someone someone that can dig deeper and get Agreed. you more benefit. Right. So. Because
1: it's like a whole conversation too. Oh yeah. It's not just, hey, I paid this. What do I owe? Or, you know, whatever it's.
2: And if there, anybody listening to this that needs a tax professional, I'm sure you can reach out to Carla. You can definitely reach out yeah, to me. We, we have great ones. We know people that we trust. Right. So. I
1: yeah. just paid my tax bill the other day. I'm, it's fine. I'm okay. <laughs> 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 I went out for the weekend with my friends and, you know, commensurated and. It's all good now.
2: You could go out with your friends after you paid your tax bill?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's— uh, I
2: normally have to wait a little bit. There
1: was, there was some crumbs left okay. over. <laughs> good good tax planning. Sure. Yeah. What do we think the future holds? Like, next year, next decade? Like, do we have a crystal ball for 1031s? Uh,
2: again, who knows? Um, yeah. You know, I like I mentioned, the Biden tax, the budget for 2022 and 2023 had 1031 limitations mm-hmm. in it. Uh, nothing happened. I expect it'll still be there next year, and I expect the budget won't get passed, so it'll be a no harm, no foul type of thing. As the economy, you know, we're in a weird time right
1: now. We really are.
2: Yeah. So the last thing I would think Congress would want to see is a limitation on 1031s because that would stall growth. Right. Our trade organization, again, Federation of Exchange Accommodators, anybody listening out there for FEA, hey, nice... Thanks for joining. <laughs> uh, I gave you credit for this one. We, hi- we hired Ernst & Young to do a study. Okay. And we, we did it about five years ago when, when uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came out. And we updated it last year. And over 15% of single-family residence transactions have 1031s attached. Did you
1: say over 50? 15. One Okay. Yeah.
2: But that's a big number. Yeah. And if you start looking around, like in just the Phoenix metro area, we've got areas here that have 40%, 50%, Tempe is 56% rental properties.
1: I believe that.
2: Well, especially with ASU. Yeah. Yeah. So, we've got a lot of investment properties throughout the valley. Right. They're doing 1031 exchanges. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, and then it's and it's not even single family properties like your traditional house, yeah. right? Like you were talking about the Starbucks guy. We sell that kind of stuff to just—it's not always just REITs and big, huge investors. We sell that to average investors all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's—I know it sounds like it's just a couple million dollars, but really, if they're selling a property and exchanging, it really is just a couple million, and it's—it's it's mailbox money if it's a Starbucks triple net. Yeah. right?
2: Well, how do you get into a Starbucks? So you st- where do you start? You start with a condo. Yeah. You bought a condo for two hundred and fifty thousand. You could sell it for four hundred. Right. And now you have maybe two hundred thousand equity. 200000 equity will buy you a million-dollar property. Yep. So you just keep growing. Yep, you just
1: keep turning it over. I personally love the people who start with house hacking, right? They live in one unit and rent the others and, you know, use it as a primary residence and then start to turn it that way because it's one of the easy— especially here where we're a little bit more expensive than, say, like Ohio. Yeah. It's an affordable way to get into your first investment property. And what better way to learn how to be a landlord than— being one. Exactly. Right? And is this something that you're cut out for?
2: Right. So, yeah, back to the crystal ball. Yeah. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't have a great one, but we've been here 100 years. I don't, I don't think it's going anyplace. Uh, we've always been able to show when there's been a threat to 1031. Like I've been in the industry since 2000. So I've done, I've been here 22 years. I've done over 18,000 exchanges. I've seen threats. I've seen a threat in 2002. 2012, 2017. And 2017, like I said, that was the biggest one. Right. Which is kind of ironic because we had a president that had done 1031 exchanges. Oh,
1: 100%. Yeah.
2: So there was a little bit of irony there. And then obviously <laughs> under, under our current administration, uh-huh. we have these limitations that are they're trying to put in that aren't happening. So we're not 100% confident that there won't be threats down the road.
1: Right. None of us can like be lackadaisical about this no. or, you know, keep it off our radar. And
2: and that's a great thing, again, about our, our trade organization. We have a committee. That's all they do is watch that. Mm-hmm. And they're, they go to the Hill in every couple months and talking with legislators to make sure they understand the value of a 1031 exchange. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is when we have those conversations, a lot of times they've done them. Maybe they're an accountant oh, yeah. and they understand it. So. They get it. Yeah. So we've had good communication with legislators on both both sides of the aisle. sure. Yeah. So we're crossing our fingers that that's how that will continue. And we won't see anything with 1031.
1: A lot of people build wealth through real estate. Oh, yeah. Regardless of the position they hold as a job. Exactly. So one more, like 1031, like little conundrum that is also up for debate right now short term rentals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you, how, do you, how, how do you perceive short-term rentals as a, as a 1031 investment?
2: I don't have a problem with it at all okay. as a 1031 investment. Because as long as you're not using it personally. Right. So if you, you live in Phoenix and you have a short-term rental in Vail, Colorado. Right. Perfect. You want to Airbnb it, VRBO, whatever, go for it. The, the thing comes up is that you can't use it personally. You're allowed to use it up to 14 days a year. That's it. Anything more than that, then it becomes a second home. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful on how much you use it. But if it's a true Airbnb mm-hmm. short-term rental and you're, just, you're not going other than to make sure it's still standing, that's fine. So you hold that property for a couple of years and then you decide you want to move on to something bigger and better. Right. Go for it. Yeah. But yeah, it just comes down to, with the short-term rental, comes down to is there personal use? Right. And if there is, then we've got to be a little careful.
1: And it's just the real estate of the short-term rental. So you can't use uh, whatever gains you're using to then exchange into. You can't buy furniture and like decorate it and stuff, right?
2: Yeah, it's going to be for the real the real property. Now, when we see, most of the time when I see somebody buying uh, a residence that has uh, furnishings and things, like, and things like that, normally it's not given any consideration. Right. Zero so, value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it's fine. Right. But if there's going to be value to it, maybe it's got some grand piano that's worth $15,000 right. and they're going to say oh you know you got to pay extra for this. Yeah. Then the 1031 can't pay for that portion. The 1031 can only pay for the real property. Right. We already talked about this. It can't pay for personal property, right. which would be the grand piano or the the ornate furniture. Right. So if there's value given to it, no, the 1031 only pays for the real property and then what would have to happen is the buyer, my my client would come in with cash at the closing. To pay for their personal property,
1: right? I've just seen it where I've had a client who exchanged out of a multifamily mm-hmm. and bought a couple Airbnbs, and the question was, was well, can't I use part of my gains to furnish the houses? Like it's kind of expensive.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean you could, but you're going to pay taxes on them first.
2: It, it, we, you couldn't yeah. do it through the exchange. So right. What would yeah. have you'd have to happen is at the end of the exchange, you leave money in there. You leave twenty thousand right. dollars, and then we give the client back twenty thousand when the exchange is over. They pay tax on the 20 and then they can do whatever they want.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, go open up a credit card at Ikea or, or you know, whatever <laughs> you need to do and just furnish it that way and Definitely. get it done. Yeah. Well, it's always fun talking to you. Thank you, Carla. How does everybody get a hold of you?
2: You can reach me uh toll-free eight five five four four 855-446-1031. That's the ten thirty-one. Did you catch that? That's the, <laughs> You're so clever. That, that's our yeah, that's <laughs> that's our main number for security first exchange. That rings on pretty much everybody's desk in the, in the office. I have two a couple of offices, so it rings every place. Talk to my staff. Ask for me. When I'm actually in the office, I'm answering the phone just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can get me, uh, if you go to securityfirstexchange.com. First is 1ST. So security1stexchange.com. Get our website. You'll see some articles that I've written uh, on different topics on 1031. So you can look it over. Uh, Find out some interesting pieces, hopefully. You can can email me from there. My email would be cdefulvio, C-D-I-F-U-L-V-I-O, V V as in Victor, I-O, at security1st.com. It's really easy.
1: He's also on LinkedIn. I am. Mm -hmm.
2: I'm trying to be every place.
1: (laughs) You and me both. Yeah. It was good to
0: talk to you. Thanks, Carla. You've been listening to Smashing Through Walls, a place for robust conversations about the building and blocks of Arizona commercial and real estate investments. Host Carla McGee is a commercial real estate broker with MHG Commercial, powered by My Home Group. The opinions expressed here are not necessarily the opinions of My Home Group and do not constitute any offer or advertisement of business or services. The real estate market is cyclical, and listeners assume all responsibility should any return on investment, tax consequences, credit effects, or financing terms not meet their expectations. Guests may not be qualified to provide financial, legal, or tax advice regarding a real estate transaction. Listeners are advised to obtain professional tax and legal advice and counsel.